The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. My name is Barb Duggan, and this session is entitled Still Sinning After All These Years. So, if you indeed are still sinning after all these years, or you know somebody who is, <laughs> you're in the right place. <laughs> Welcome. I'm really glad that you're here, so thank you for joining me today. A few things before we start out. Make sure that you have your outlines handy. And at the end of the session, we're going to close with a prayer together, reading it out loud. So make sure that you have that available as well. So we can close with a prayer that's been adapted from the Valley of Vision. And second of all, for the Q&A... Uh, I would like to make a request of you, and that is often, particularly if many of you are counselors in this room, the questions come with a big story, right? And for the purposes of a Q&A, it would be really helpful if you could take the story and boil it down to the question so that lots of people can ask questions and we don't get involved in long counseling stories. Um, and maybe sometimes that's necessary. If I need more information, I will ask from you, ask that of you. But it would be really helpful, uh, I think, to try to boil it down to a concise question as much as you can. That would be great. Uh, our session title, Still Sinning After All These Years, actually comes from a song written by Paul Simon, Still Crazy After All those, These Years. Have you ever heard that song? My husband and I, normally I want to tell you, I do these talks in four one-hour talks. And I usually take my time because this material can be misunderstood. And I usually take my time to lay down all the biblical foundation and we move slowly through it so as not to leave you wondering uh, what it is that I have said and what I have left out. This is going to be fast-forward through the material, okay? So you probably will be left with some questions. But normally, uh, when my husband and I were sitting around thinking about how to entitle the four sessions, we came up with Paul Simon themes for all of them, which was kind of fun. But still crazy after all these years. That's a song about two lovers who meet after many years, and they're still crazy about each other. Uh, and I switched the title because I don't know if you struggle with this, but I've been a Christian, let's say I'm 56 now, I've been a Christian for 50 years, and find myself still sinning a lot after all these years. And I really, really thought, as a younger believer, that I would be so much more holy and godly by now. And instead, I find myself, and I really thought my husband would be so much more holy, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> he is, he is, he is. I want to tell you something. I'm so glad he is here uh, to help me out today. But this man, God has gifted him with so much self-control, it's really hard to catch him sinning, and it's, uh, it infuriates me. It's very, very annoying. Um, but he, too, what do you know? He, too, still struggles with sin after all these years. And so uh, many of you are counselors, and even in your own life, probably have areas in your life where you hate your sin. You are pleading with God to help you get over that sin, to conquer it. You're doing everything you can. You've read every book. You've gone to every workshop. You've done everything you can, and yet that sin won't budge. Others might be changing. You might be growing in all kinds of ways, but that sin won't budge. So what is God up to in the areas of our lives where we are not changing? And how um, can we look at God's word in a way that helps us to be patient with the counselees that we are working with who are not changing rapidly? at least not in the area that they want to change. 
and to be patient with ourselves when there are stubborn areas in our own lives. So the one verse that I want you to think about that would encompass all of the thoughts that we're going to talk about, that we're going to kind of fly through today, would be 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure, Jesus Christ, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God has put this treasure in really weak vessels because the point of this life here on earth is not to showcase our power and our glory and our holiness. This life is for understanding how much we need the holiness of somebody else in our place. Heaven is the place where we get to find out what it's like to worship God without sin. But for our lives here on earth, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are people who are called biblically to try to obey God with all our hearts, soul, strength, and mind, all of our effort. And then we're told you're going to be really weak and you're going to fail a lot. That is a difficult human experience. And the more you love God and the more you want to obey him, the more difficult it is, isn't it? When you find yourself, like Paul in Romans 7, unable to obey the way that you want to. So that's why this is such an important thing to talk about. Everything that I talk about really comes from the writings of somebody else. Nothing I'm going to say here today is new at all. Um, I will take the doctrines that you know and love and perhaps rearrange them in a slightly different way, which would represent the lens that our Puritan forefathers used to look at the problem of indwelling sin. And uh, in our second session, we're going to go to the Westminster Confession of Faith and look at how the writers of the confession uh, describe this struggle with obedience and disobedience. So nothing here is new. I haven't made this up. I have stolen it shamelessly from John Newton. And I commend his writings to you. Many years ago, I was given this little book, The Select Letters of John Newton, and have spent 30 years studying it. And uh, it was life-changing to me as a person, as a Christian, as a counselor, as a mother, as a pastor's wife. Nothing has so radically impacted me as John Newton's view of sanctification and um, the way it radically challenges our modern concepts of sanctification. So we are going to fly through this, and I'm going to presume a lot upon your biblical knowledge. I know that you would love it. If everything I say, I could back up with passages of scripture today, and I am going to refer you to my book and to John Newton himself. I'm not going to be able to do that. I hope I'm going to put some new thoughts in front of you uh, that you will go away and think about, pray about. Um, And I'm going to presume, but I think that most of the theology that I am going to presume upon is common. I don't have to fight for it. You will already know and love the truth that I'm going to bring out. And as we get started, I want to give you a little advice from John Newton himself. Um, He says, whenever you hear a new truth that's uh, supposedly from God's word and it's new to you and you wonder, wow, I don't know if this is right or not. I don't know how many of you have had the experience of believing one thing and then finding out actually it wasn't right and your view of God's word was actually something different, okay? And it's it's a puzzling thing to hear something new and think, wow, I don't think that's what the Bible says. What are we to do with new truth claims? Well, Newton says this. First of all, is it scriptural? Of course, he believed in the the, uh, authority and inspiration of scripture. Does it come from all over scripture, though? Not does it just pop up here and there in a phrase or uh, a verse. Does it run from Genesis to Revelation? Is it scriptural? Does it map onto your experience? Now, we are really wise to be careful about that word experience, right? Experience is not determinative. 
but experience is important. If I were to say to you, believe in Jesus Christ and you will never get sick, would you find me a very credible speaker? Because you've become Christians and you've all been sick, right? Doesn't map onto your experience. As I am talking, I want you to think, do I experience this? And uh, because I can't go deeply into particularly the stages of Christian growth today um, that are so helpful that Newton writes about, um, I would really commend to you his writing as well because as I read Newton, I thought, whoa, this is exactly what I'm experiencing. It mapped onto my experience. And he says, that matters. It matters that what you're hearing actually is what's being lived out in your life and in the life of other believers in the church. Thirdly, does it exalt God and humble man? Does it exalt God and humble man? Because if it does exalt God and humble man, two things will be true. You're probably not going to like it very well. There will be a sting to your human pride, right? And uh, next, it will probably be true. Okay? Any theology that opens your eyes to the greatness of God in a new way. God is bigger than you thought, more powerful, more sovereign than you thought. You are not quite so powerful uh, as you thought. It's probably going to be true. And then fourthly, does this truth encourage you toward love and holiness? Now, some people, when they hear Newton's teaching, uh, will become fearful that if we buy into this, if we believe these things, we're going to want to sin a lot. And that certainly was not Newton's desire, nor is it mine. Everything that I'm going to talk about actually should motivate your heart toward greater love for God and a stronger desire to obey him, not a greater love for sin and desire to give up. In fact, these truths are the truths, I think, that give you the courage to get out of bed after weeks of relentless failure and try again. Okay, these are the truths that motivate you toward obedience, not away from it. So if you think I've said anything different from that, we'll have to connect about that. Now, I want to begin by uh, talking about a few popular notions of sanctification that I grew up believing in. And maybe some of them will sound familiar to you as well. I grew up believing, and I grew up in a missionary family. Uh, and I also was a pastor's daughter. And I, I basically grew up believing that from the moment you become a Christian, you really should kind of be getting better and better every day. If you have quiet times, preferably long quiet times, if you pray a lot, if you go to church, if you do all the spiritual disciplines, you really ought to just get better and better every day. Do you think a lot of people buy into that in our Christian culture today? I think a lot of us think that. And I don't believe that's true in sanctification. I don't think that we get better and better because there's some problems arise with that way of looking at sanctification. First of all, why is it then that very mature believers can fall so badly into sin? It's puzzling, isn't it? When pastors who have had long ministries of preaching the gospel fall into sin. What about biblical characters like King David? When he encounters Bathsheba, and I know you, some of you may have been at the, council, the workshop about that, he's not a baby king, is he? He has walked with God for years. He has written all these beautiful psalms. And when God leads him to himself for a moment on a rooftop, he falls badly into sin. What about Peter and his denial of Christ? I mean, that was pretty serious, right? And he had been a disciple personally in contact with the Messiah for three years by the time this happens and he falls. What about Paul in Romans 7 and his struggle with sin? He's not a baby apostle when he's writing that either. So these are godly men falling into sin. Why do mature believers fall? And um, this way of looking at sanctification, I think, will help you to understand how that can happen. 
Um, why am I seeing new sins in my life every day? Are any of you experiencing that? Um, every new season, John Newton says, every new day that we spend in the wilderness, we see new sins that we haven't seen before because new circumstances shed a new light on our heart. I've become a mother-in-law. I could be the worst mother-in-law in the world. I pray about that a lot. Okay, what does becoming a mother-in-law, what new sins might I struggle with that I never knew were in my heart by becoming a mother-in-law? I have parents who are 90 and 91 years old. I would have thought that I would have been the most patient, loving daughter on the face of this earth. And you know what? I am not. I struggle with impatience. Every time I go to fly to see my parents, I ask everybody to pray for me. Because life slows down to such a crawl that it's really hard, right, to be there. And the dementia that they're struggling with, oh, I should just be loving them so much. And instead, I find this sinful heart rising up, and I'm like, I can't wait to get home. i got to get out of here. And uh, I'm not proud of that. There are new sins that I'm seeing every day. So um, if we're getting better and better, actually, that shouldn't be happening. We should be seeing less and less sins. And then what about my thoughts in my inward life? Okay, even if from the time I was a younger Christian, uh, my outward life has, is looking a little bit better. What about that relentless thought life? What is going on in our minds? Do you ever think about what you think about? Step back. Uh, draw a pie chart in your little brain at the moment. What slice of the pie, how big is the slice of the pie when you were thinking about God actively? Now, this weekend doesn't count because you've been listening to great stuff. But as you go through your day every day, what slice of the pie represents where you're actively thinking about God? I can go through most of the day without even thinking about him. And then often my thoughts drift to thoughts about myself one way or the other. If they're about other people, they're about, well, do they like me? Do they not like me? Are they nice to me? Do they say nice things about me? Okay, Relentlessly, my thought life will be about me. And it slides. There's this drift of my heart away from godly things toward myself generally. So what that, what's that all about? Well, I was first captivated by John Newton because when I first encountered his writing, I was seeing a lot of inward sin, and I thought I was the only one. I was not in a Christian environment where people were actively talking about their sin, and I was so ashamed and so upset with the new sins that I was seeing. And then... I encountered John Newton, who was a pastor. Uh, You know his story. I can't go into his biography. It's remarkable, of course, and you can look it up online. Out of the Depths is his story of his conversion. He went on to become a pastor in the Anglican Church. And um, at the height of his popularity, when he was a pastor in London, listen to what he says about his heart. He is mature. He's walked with the Lord a long time by by this point. And you do have the quotes in there. I'm sorry I didn't number them. That would have helped you. This one starts with, I would not be the sport. Listen to what this pastor says about his heart. He says this, I would not be the sport and prey of wild, vain, foolish, and vile imaginations, but this evil is present within me. My heart is like an open highway, like a city without walls or gates. Nothing so false, so frivolous, so absurd, or so impossible, or so horrid, but it can attain access, and at any time, or in any place, neither the study, the pulpit, nor even the Lord's table exempt me from their intrusion. Let's stop there for a second. Here is a pastor telling you that some of his most sinful thoughts come into his mind when he's writing his sermon, even when he's serving the Lord's Supper. 
Well, that made me really pray for my husband because I thought, if I think my sin is hard to bear, can you imagine having sinful thoughts while you're serving the Lord's Supper? Amazing. And his honesty is shocking. It's shocking. Then he goes on to say, But if this awful effect of heart depravity cannot be wholly avoided in the present state of human nature, yet at least I would not allow and indulge it, yet this I find I do. In defiance of my best judgment and best wishes, I find something within me which cherishes and cleaves to those evils from which I ought to be horrified and flee from, as I would if a toad or a serpent was put in my bed. Ah, how vile must the heart, at least my heart, be that can hold a parley with such abominations when I so well know their tendency. Surely, he who finds himself capable of this may, without the least affectation of humility, however fair his outward conduct appears, subscribe himself less than the least of all saints and the very chief of sinners. So when I read John Newton, I started to realize, oh, I'm not the only one with this problem. And as I read... Through his writings, I realized we all have this problem, this inner thought life that relentlessly seeks for glory and praise and approval and admiration, which relentlessly worships itself and which is capable of harboring really, really sinful thoughts and cherishing them, even though we know their nature. So I don't think, uh, biblically, either there's any warrant for we get better and better every day, neither experientially. What about another commonly held view in Christian circles about sanctification, that it is a cooperative effort between me and God? Many of us understand that we're in by faith alone, through grace alone, but then we believe there's a change. And now the deal is, um, as long as I do my part, God will then do his part, And spiritual growth is now a cooperation between the two of us. Well, there's some problems with looking at sanctification that way. First of all, biblically, um, I think sanctification is just like salvation, that God is consistent in that all of the work is his from beginning to end, not just salvation, but all the way through. But one of the first problems you get to is if there is cooperation in your sanctification, you have grounds upon which to boast when you stand before God at the end of time. And Paul, particularly, is absolutely determined that there will be no boasting. And if you stand before God and somebody next to you isn't quite as together as you are as a Christian, you will not be able to say, it's because I was more willing to obey than she was. I was smarter and I read God's word more. You don't have a leg to stand on before God. And you know what that means? That means it's all his work. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's going to raise a lot of questions, and you feel free to wrestle with all the questions that are going to come up. But you have some really big problems with the view of the cooperative sanctification. Another problem that you have is that if sanctification is cooperative, you ought to be doing better in the areas of your life where you're trying harder. Because if sanctification requires your effort, then if you're trying, it ought to go better. And often there will be, all of us, I think, have areas in our lives where we are actually trying hard and we're pleading with God to change us and we're not changing. Okay, so what about that piece? How do I get God to do his part? How do I flip the switch that gets him to answer my prayers, especially when I'm praying really good prayers, like, God, help me to stop sinning. Okay? Um, and uh, what, what again, when I talk about those kinds of sins, that's opening the door on what we would call besetting sin, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. I've heard in Christian circles, people say, well, if God commands something in Scripture, it means you can obey it. 
God would never be mean enough or unkind enough to make a command in Scripture that you couldn't actually keep. So therefore, because it's there, it means you should be able, in this life here on earth, to keep that command. Well, I strongly disagree with that. He says, forgive as you've been forgiven in Christ. How's that going for you? <laughs> Love as you have been loved. How's that going? I think the Bible is full of commands, Old and New Testament, which we will never keep anywhere close to perfectly here on earth. And the Heidelberg Catechism tells us in this life, we make very small beginnings, right? Tiny beginnings on the road to obedience. And the fact that we dwell in sinful flesh, and Paul tells us in Romans, the whole flesh has to be taken down. Our sinful flesh taints everything that we do. Okay, So this idea that because it's there and it's commanded we can obey it does not mean that God is up there stomping his foot, disappointed and angry with you because you will not get your act together. You are a vessel. You're a weak vessel. You're a jar of clay. He knows that. Your heavenly Father knows that you're made of dust and has compassion on you. But we look at all those commands and we focus on them and we forget all the weakness passages. I don't have time to read all the weakness passages with you. Go home and do that. Uh, do a search and look at, especially in the New Testament, all the times Paul particularly, but others as well, talk about weakness. Somehow we miss those because we are eager to run right toward all the things that we are supposed to be doing. So we are called to the sweeping obedience that we cannot actually achieve. Is God mean? Is he teasing? Is he messing with us? We're going to come back many times and ask this question, why would a loving Heavenly Father do that? Why do a loving Heavenly Father call us to this perfect holiness and tell us that he is holy and he loves holiness and yet leave us so weak? Is he mean or is there something else going on? I uh, grew up believing that repentance equals change and that you have not repented of something until you have completely changed. Now, this is an interesting one because I don't believe that's true. I believe repentance is godly sorrow for your sin. And change is something else, okay? And that they're separate things. Therefore, in those areas of your life where you really hate your sin and you're pleading with God, I believe you're expressing godly sorrow for your sin. You hate it, right? You're like David in Psalm 51. God, forgive me. Create in me a clean heart. Renew me. Put your spirit within me, right? You're pleading. That is what repentance sounds like, okay? And change is not necessarily linked with repentance. There can be areas in your life where you are repenting continually and not changing. Okay, again, that will factor into our talk on besetting sin. Um, so for John Newton, and I think biblically, the view of sanctification is not so much about decreasing the number of sins you commit every day. And like today it was, you know, 562, and hopefully tomorrow it will be 560, all right, and getting the number down. I think that's kind of what we think it's all about. For Newton, growing in sanctification was more about growing in humility and dependence upon God, not so much about beating sin. And in order to understand that, I'm going to rapidly take you on a walk through um, a biblical theology of sinful failure and um, tell you how Newton and uh, many of our Puritan forefathers got to this point of looking at sanctification that way. And Newton um, reasons this way. All things are equally easy for God, right? God is sovereign. All things are equally easy for God. I don't think anybody in this room would have a problem with that statement. Um, another way I like to say it is that God gets his way. Every day, 
and every little molecule of the universe, not a cell divides without his permission, has huge implications, doesn't it? Not a cell divides without his permission. My husband recently had surgery for prostate cancer. That first cancer cell, God presided over the division of it. And the next, and the next. These things don't happen without God's permission, okay? And that thought alone for you and your counselees actually has huge implications. You can look back at the end of every day and say, God got his way today. A lot of things may have happened that we know God doesn't like. It may may, may not have gone my way. God got his way. That is a profoundly life-changing thought, particularly if you're struggling with sin and you had a bad day. Okay, God got his way. Okay, all things are equally easy for God. And God, at the time of regeneration, he could have taken out our sinful nature and left only the work of new creation. Okay, so we know, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Above all things, who can know it? God could have, because all things are equally easy, at the moment of regeneration, removed that sinful flesh and begun the work of new creation without sin there. You know, if you die tonight, you will be in his presence. Perfect. Uh, It is no problem for God to get rid of your sinful nature. But God didn't do that. Instead, God began the work of new creation and left that very depraved, very naughty, sinful flesh in place. Why would a loving Heavenly Father do that? Why would a loving Heavenly Father do that? What does it feel like to you to be new creation and old sinful flesh dwelling together? Are you ever puzzled by yourself? Do you ever feel like two people? What the heck is going on? I was recently at the pharmacy in a hurry to pick up some medications. Now, I'm a little bit of a bully sometimes, right? When I'm in a hurry, like part... Everybody, move away. I'm on a mission, and I'm very important, and you all need to know that I'm in a hurry, okay? And that works its way out sometimes in some very naughty behavior toward salespeople and things like that. And it's something I'm very convicted of and really asking God to help me with. I arrive at the pharmacy, and the line is not moving. And I look up front, and God did a wonderful thing. He helped me to see something, okay? Um, God put a thought in my mind, alien to my impatient, uh, bully type of uh, personality. Barb, those people at the front are old. And I have learned it's really mean to rush old people, isn't it? They get very confused. Oh, my poor mom, when you rush her, she just, you know, she feels so bad, like she's bothering the whole world, and she gets all upset. And so that was a wonderful, God rescued me in that moment from my sin. In that moment, Barb, they're old, you need to back off. And then he gave me another really wonderful thought. They are not primary English speakers. They're speaking with a strong accent. Imagine what it would be like to be in a country where you're old and you don't understand English very well, and you're trying to understand a drug, a medication. Oh, God was so kind to me. So I thought, all right, Lord, this is going to be hard for me to wait so what can I do to distract myself? What would be nice? I'll stoop to my weakness and say, you're not good at this, Barb. What will help you? And talking to my kids and my family on the phone is like my favorite thing. So I'm dialing the phone, and I get my, ro- my Rosie on the phone, and we're having a wonderful conversation. Literally 10 minutes later, I look up front because I had turned my back. I'm not going to rush anybody. And the clerk was waiting on the person who had been behind me. Do you understand the gravity of this? She's waiting on the person who's behind me. And I looked at her and I said, excuse me, I was next in line. 
And she said she had the audacity to say, it is our store policy to never wait on somebody who's on their cell phone. <laughs> and I said, and where is that in writing? Would you like to have the manager come and show that to me in writing? Because I have been shopping here for years, and I have never been told that. And I have never. And how did I go from saint to monster <laughs> in three seconds flat? Okay? How did I go? All these godly thoughts. Oh, God, help me love people. And now I'm terrifying the clerk, and I'm enjoying it. Okay? When I get mad, babies cry, and dogs howl. You can tell that, right? You saw that come out of me. It's like, I'm a scary person. I have anger problems, big ones. How did I go from saint to monster? How many times a day does that happen? How many times a day? What is that all about? Now, I'm not going to be able to talk about the mechanism of that until our next talk. But what God has done is leave that old sinful flesh and he has wed it to new creation. And so all day long, we feel this tug back and forth. At one moment, we can be filled with godly thoughts and lofty love. And we're even surprised. Where did that come from? And the next moment, we can be beasts. We can be so mean and so cruel. And we're even shocked ourselves. What does that feel like to you? Now, does that map on to your experience? It's important. Does that happen to you as well? Now... It is important for us to understand that really depraved sinful nature. And some people will say to me, Barb, I don't, why would I want to think about my sin? Why would I want to dwell on that? Because, you know, it's really important to understand the depravity of that nature or you will be shocked by it over and over in yourself and others. And you'll say things like, she's a Christian and I don't know how she could do that. I'll tell you how she can do that. She's got a fallen sinful nature that's really bad. And God is giving her over to it at the moment, Okay. So you won't be shocked. So you won't be discouraged by your sin. Because you know what? God made this decision to leave that sinful flesh for a good purpose. And we'll get to that in a minute. So you won't give up on yourself and on others. You need to understand the depths of that depravity. So you can have a robust theology of the finished work of Christ that gives you the courage to look your sin in the eye and take it on. Okay? And not be undone by it. To face it honestly. And to help us face our disordered desires of every kind. So it's good to understand your depravity and to notice it and to think about it a bit and to constantly come back to the question, why would a lovingly Heavenly Father do this? Well, Newton reasons, if God does all things for his glory and for our good, God does all things for his glory and for our good, then somehow his decision to leave sin in us must actually glorify God and be good for us. Now, if you're screaming on the inside, that's okay. I don't want you to just believe it because I said it. You know, I, the burden of proof is on me and on God's word and, and uh, the full discourse of this. But somehow even your indwelling sin, if all things work together for good, for the, for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose, that has to include your ongoing indwelling sin. How can your sin ever glorify God or be good for you? We're going to get to that. But this, Newton says, as he says, one thing I do know is God would never leave horrible sin in us if he did not purpose to overrule it for his own purposes and for our good. He would never have done that. You know why? Because he's a loving Heavenly Father. He really, really, really loves us. He cares about us, and he hates sin. And that's the next point I want to talk about. We know uh, that God hates sin. So in order to think about this clearly, we're going to have to talk about God's relationship to sin. 
God hates sin. We know that. I don't have to persuade you of that. God teaches his children to hate sin. Right from the beginning of the creation narrative onward, we are to war against it. We're to fight it. He hates it. He is holy. We know that God cannot be tempted by evil. And we know that he tempts no one ever. So these are things I think you already know. So whatever I say this weekend, we can never blame our sin on God. I am not saying that we ever have any grounds to blame our sin upon God. We're going to blame our sin on that naughty, depraved, fallen, sinful nature. It is a big enough reason. It takes all the blame. But there are other things that we want to notice about God's relationship with sin. First of all, God actually tolerates a lot of it. Think about from the first sin till now. There's a lot of sin now. God always gets his way. He could end sin at any point, right? Uh, My husband is fond of saying, if he were God, the Bible would be really short. God made Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. God blows up the world. Finished, right? But instead, not only does he let the serpent into the garden. Friends, he let the serpent into the garden, okay? He didn't have to do that. He, He could have kept that serpent out. He let him in. And from that time on, he has tolerated piles and piles and piles of sin. So God is tolerating something he hates for some reason, okay? Next, we have to look at Scripture and acknowledge that God ordains sin. Now, some people have a real problem with that word. Ordain can mean purposefully allowing. Uh, Not passively allowing. It's not as though God just doesn't have the power to deal with it and he's just got to sit back and let it all wash over the world because he's nothing he can do about it. No. The God who always gets his way allows, purposefully allows sin. How do I know that? Well, that's all over scripture. And there are several places that we can go to look look at that. I'm not going to do a thorough job of that this time. But look at the opening passage of um, Job and Satan's conversation with God. That's a stunning place to look because God begins this conversation with Job, uh, with Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Um, And you know the story. Uh, Satan says, he just serves you because of the stuff you give him. God says, take away his stuff. At several points in the story, God limits what Satan can and can't do, doesn't he? I mean, Satan needs God's permission to sin. Guess what? So do you. That's where we're heading. Satan needs God's permission to sin. God allows Satan to wreak havoc. He also allows us and our sinful nature to wreak havoc. But it's not out of his control. He is ordaining and allowing it. Um, Jesus and the demons in the New Testament, that's really interesting too, right? He tells them what they can and can't say. He's ordering them around. In the Old Testament, you have several times where um, God sends an evil spirit into somebody. And it's shocking. Uh, if God only hates sin and could have dealt with it, those passages ought not to be there. He's using sin for his purposes. And what about Joseph? What does he say to his brothers? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So at each point in that story, very naughty brothers are doing horrible things. Um, and we can attribute that all to their naughty, sinful natures and their evil desires. They're following the desires of their heart. God is allowing it because it fits into his will. And he's ordaining it. Because he's got a plan for Joseph, and he's got a plan for his people, and it will all work together toward that. One of the most um, overt places where you can see it is Genesis 26. This is one one verse that comes out of the Abraham narrative, and this is one of the times where Abraham has lied about Sarah. She's been taken into Abimelech's harem, and Abimelech did not touch her. 
And then Abimelech finds out that she's Abraham's sister. And he says, um, God, I didn't sleep with her. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. What? Pagan king. He's not even one of God's people. And God is saying, I kept you from sinning. Wow, what a stunning thought, okay? Then at the cross, it's very interesting to look at the several times in the Gospels where there were people who picked up stones to try to kill Jesus. Do you remember that? And he seems to just disappear. And they had the same evil, wicked, sinful desire to kill him that the people did on the day of the crucifixion, but God did not give them over to that, right? Because it wasn't the right time. But when it was the right time, and it was the time for um, all of it to fit into God's perfect will, God gives those men over to evil, wicked desire. So the guys that wanted to kill him and couldn't didn't get to sin that way. Okay, they wanted to, but they, God didn't let them. And the others did. Are there sins in your life that God has kept you from doing that you really wanted to commit? I know it's true of me. There are sins that I have launched headlong determined to commit. And God would not let me. And I think that, for me, that was one of the turning points in understanding God's power. How wonderful that he rescued me from my sin. And then there are a lot that he is letting you do, right? He is turning you over to, okay? So, what we're moving toward is understanding that God uses man's sin to accomplish his will. I think it's Paul Tripp who says, God uses something he hates to accomplish something he loves. He uses sin to accomplish something that he loves. And we can see that in the lives of many biblical characters like um, Joseph and others. I don't have time to go into all of them. I will mention David, King David. How does God use David's sin to accomplish things that he loves? What comes from the union of David and Bathsheba? Solomon. Who comes from the line of Solomon? Jesus Christ. So this is a graphic, physical picture of God using a sin to accomplish eventually the birth of the Messiah. And you know that Jesus has a lot of really big sinners in his lineage, doesn't he? Interesting, right? God could have stopped David from sinning with Bathsheba. There are a million ways he could have stopped that whole scenario. It could have been pouring rain, right? Nobody would have been on the rooftop. They could have had a really bad tummy bug, okay? Nobody feels like messing around when you have a really bad tummy bug. <laughs> I don't think. I haven't met those people anyway. But <laughs> the point is, there are a million ways. <laughs> Some of you ladies are going, oh, you don't know. Okay. Um, there are a million ways that God could have stopped that sin. But he didn't because it was going to completely, beautifully, perfectly fit in to his plan for the lineage of the Messiah. What an astounding thought, okay? So there are some of the building pieces that I want to put in place as we move toward our understanding of Christian growth. So God could have made us perfect. He did not. Instead, he left this raging war that he often turns us over to, that he allows us to engage. Now, if you wonder how is it that God can ordain sin, Without causing it, I'm going to give you just a little illustration that might help you along that path. If you are standing at a bus stop and you see a little child playing in the road, okay, and you see a bus coming, you have a decision to make. Are you going to rescue that child or are you going to leave them? Now, if the bus hits that child, you have not been the cause of that injury. The bus has been the cause of the injury, correct? Have you played a part? You have allowed it, right? 
You've played a part, okay? So that's just one little piece and one little snippet that can help you think a little bit. It's not the ultimate deepest answer. Um, But God allows things uh, without being the ultimate cause of them. So uh, how do we take all these pieces and God's relationship with sin and now look at sanctification and at the stages of Christian growth? And I'm going to fly through the stages of Christian growth. Uh, This is one of Newton's most um, beautiful contributions to the church is his observation of how it is that Christians grow. So he studied the scriptures, such a learned man. And he studied people. He was a counselor, and he considered himself an expert on the anatomy of the soul. And this man had the powerful gift of taking profound theology and causing it to collide with real life. Some of our counselees, even we ourselves, struggle with that, right? We believe amazing things which make absolutely no difference in our lives from day to day. What on earth is going on? Why? Well, he had this gift, and I think that through some of these... um, some of these steps that we're taking, you can get some ideas on how to help others walk down this path as well. But he looked at the stages of Christian growth, and he said, what is it that God does in believers from the moment that he saves them onward? How does he do his work? And so he came up with three stages, and he calls them A, B, and C. Um, I call them the baby stage, the maturing stage, the adult stage. I'll fly, fly through them very, very quickly. He says, the baby stage of the Christian life is characterized by the word desire. Desire, because we want to uh, obey and please God. When we find out that he has saved us from sin, that Jesus died on the cross, and we are smitten with the understanding of the cost that he paid, our hearts well up with love and with zeal. So the baby Christian is full of zeal, not a lot of knowledge, not a profound, deep understanding of the gospel, but lots of zeal. And I know that most of you can look back in your lives, and if you were raised in a Christian home and you accepted Christ very young, you might not be able to like mark the beginning of a stage by salvation. I look at um, college, uh, early college and high school as the baby stage, even though I accepted Christ much, much earlier, where I was full of zeal about God, witnessing to everybody, uh, reading my Bible voraciously, and so, so hungry for God's word. Um, the baby Christian is focused very much on outward behavior and does not yet see their hearts and the sins of the hearts. Very blind to inward sin. The baby Christian still clings to the covenant of works in some way. They understand that they're in by by grace, but they tend to think because our hearts return to the covenant of works, the gospel is foreign to us. Uh, They tend to think, now it's up to me to do the rest, right? Or at least to help God out and do my part. And so the baby Christian struggles with a legalistic spirit that Newton says actually really hurts him. Um, But he's on his way somewhere. But at this point, time can be very legalistic. Can you look back at a time in your own lives where you were really, really legalistic and maybe very loud and brash, maybe censuring everybody around you? You know what that looked like in my life? I went to a public high school. I came from a missionary family, and I knew it was my job to convert them all. And I tried really hard. And I witnessed very rudely and very boldly because I was a baby who didn't understand And I meant well, but I said things like, okay, don't believe in Jesus. You're just stupid. Go to hell. Wow. I am so grateful. I was so relieved to find out that God did not ever put anybody's eternal salvation in my hands. (laughs) There'd be quite a few people in hell right now because of me, and I'm so grateful. What a relief it was. I was really, really obnoxious. And I thought I was doing God a favor. I thought he would be so pleased with me. But I was blind to the pride, blind to the arrogance, 
no knowledge of what salvation, how it really was accomplished, and out there just blowing my mouth off, you know. Baby Christians can be like that. Baby Christians tend to have emotions based on their performance. When they do well, they're very excited, and God is really pleased with me. And, but then when they do badly, they're very depressed. Oh, God must be so disappointed and so upset with me. Baby Christians sometimes are guilty of glory stealing. We are glory stealers by nature. And I think because they don't understand God's work, they can take credit for his work in their lives sometimes. And that might sound like, well, when I became a Christian, I quit smoking. And if I can quit smoking, anybody can. You see, there's a confusion there about who did what. Quitting smoking was God's gift to the baby Christian. But the baby gets confused and thinks it was their their, their gift to God in a sense, right? This is what Newton has to say about this stage of the Christian life. Burdened while he is thus young in the knowledge of the gospel, while he is thus young in the knowledge of the gospel, burdened with sin and perhaps beset with Satan's temptations, the Lord who gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in his bosom is pleased at times to favor him with cordials that he may not be swallowed with, up with overmuch sorrow. Perhaps his heart is enlarged in prayer or under hearing or some good promise is brought home to mind and applied with power and sweetness. He mistakes the nature and design of these comforts, which are not given him to rest in, but to encourage him to press forward. He thinks it's then right because he has them and fondly hopes to have them always. Then his mountain stands strong, but before long, he feels a change. His comforts are withdrawn. He finds no heart to pray, no attention and hearing. Indwelling sin revives with fresh strength. Perhaps Satan returns with redoubled rage. Then he is at his wit's end and thinks his hopes were presumptuous and his comforts delusions. He wants to feel something that will give him a warrant to trust in the free promises of Christ. His views of the Redeemer's gracefulness are very narrow, and he sees not the harmony and glory of the divine attributes in, a salvation, in the salvation of a sinner. Okay, so there's the baby Christian. God gives him special presents. I love that picture of scooping the baby up and carrying the baby gently and giving him special presents to um, encourage him along the way. Now, do you think of loving to read the Bible and wanting to pray as God's gift to you or your gifts to him? This is another one of these things that can radically change your whole view of everything when you start to realize if Newton's right, then every time you want to pray is because God's giving you a gift not you doing it. It's a radical change in, in thinking, but it makes a lot of difference, okay? The maturing stage. Now, I would love to camp out here, and I'm not going to have a whole lot of time for this, but the maturing stage is where a lot of us will find ourselves, and Newton says the maturing stage is characterized by the word conflict. And this is what he has to say. A, the baby Christian like Israel has been delivered from Egypt by great power and a stretched out arm, has been pursued and terrified by many enemies, has given himself up for lost again and again. He has at last seen his enemies destroyed and sang the song of Moses and the lamb upon the banks of the Red Sea. What a sweet analogy. The, the Christian, particularly those of you who remember becoming Christians, you, that relief, you know, that um, you are no longer headed to hell. Your enemies have been, con have been conquered. Then he commences B, and perhaps like Israel, he thinks his difficulties are at an end. And he expects to go on rejoicing until he enters the promised land. Of course, the Israelites thought, God drowned all my enemies. He's going to do that from here on out, and we are just going to waltz into the promised land and live happily ever after. However, that is not what happened, is it? Not at all. Newton says, but alas, his difficulties are in a manner but beginning. There is a wilderness before him of which he is not aware. The Lord is now about to suit his circumstances or dispensations to humble and to prove him. 
So there's that theme. What is God up to? Humbling and, and uh, creating dependence. To humble and to prove him, to show him what is in his heart, that he may do him good at the latter end, and that all the glory may redound to God's own free grace. So Newton goes on to say that after a period of time, God withdraws these cordials, and the baby Christian is undone. Is there a time that you can look back on when you love to read God's word and then not so much? It became more of a chore. You love to read the Bible and now not so much. And you wonder what on earth is going on. Why would a loving Heavenly Father give a lovely gift like that and take it away? Great question. Newton says, by these changing um, dispensations, the Lord is actually growing him up and moving him forward. God grows us by withdrawing comforts because he's up to something else in this stage of the Christian life, which will be full of conflict. What is God ultimately up to in this stage of the Christian life? Well, he's going to show us that we are far weaker than we ever imagined and that God is a bigger, more wonderful Savior than we could imagine. And this is what he has to say. The dark and disconsolate hours which the believer has brought upon himself in times past will make him doubly prize the light of God's countenance and teach him to dread whatever might grieve the spirit of God and cause him to withdraw again. Now, this is an important line. Listen to this. The repeated and multiplied pardons which he has received by falling into sin a lot increases admiration of and the sense of his obligations to the rich, sovereign, abounding mercy of the covenant. Much has been forgiven him, therefore he loves much, and he knows how to forgive and pity others. I'm not going to finish that quote, but right there, Newton is saying that God is working in the heart of a believer in a really powerful and big way by letting him sin, letting him fall into sin. Because there is some aspect of God's character we only know by being repeat offenders. If you sin and you say, Lord, forgive me, and then you never commit that sin again, you are grateful for that forgiveness. But what about the 50th time? What about all the times you promised him you would never do it again? Now, when you find that you can't out-sin his love, now what? Do you realize it's not all about you and your performance? Do you start to look to the one whose performance was perfect in your place? God is up to wonderful, wonderful things. What does this look like practically in the life of somebody? Well, my own struggle with being obese... Um, is a real graphic picture of this because for many years I was uh, weighed almost 300 pounds and there was no sin. I hated more than my gluttony. Okay, And you know the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentle self-control. Forget them all. I want self-control. Do you know that you can want to not sin for really sinful reasons? Do you think my motivation for wanting self-control was all about pleasing God? Oh, I was embarrassed. Really embarrassed that people could look at me in one moment and just know I'm messed up. Man, I'm really messed up. I didn't want people to know that. So you see, in this period of time where God was not working in this area of my life, guess what he was doing? He was making me more loving toward people who were not getting over other kinds of sins. He was making me more patient and much more forgiving toward others. You see, he was up to really great, wonderful, huge, fabulous things while he was not doing the one thing I wanted more than anything else. You see, when we start to understand that, we, our eyes begin to fly open to what God is doing everywhere. God is not only up to good things when you're obeying. He is at work in you 24-7, every day of the week. And even in your worst moments, he is doing some of his most, most breathtaking work. Amazing. And again, the mechanism will come. Um, 
in our next talk. What are some of the implications of this? I'll just run through this real quickly and then try to leave you some time for questions. In this view of sanctification, we are going to step back and we're going to focus a lot more on what God is doing than what people are doing. And in counseling, we're often very caught up in what is the counselee thinking and doing, and we rarely step back and say, why would a loving Heavenly Father have that person experience that? What is God doing? Really important. If sanctification is all of grace, it's his work from start to finish, then stepping back and asking that question uh, for ourselves and for our counselees is really, really important. It opens up this whole category of besetting sin. There are areas of our lives where, like Paul in Romans 7, we want to do good, but evil is right there with us, okay? And we get stuck in those places. And if we don't understand what God's doing, we get overly discouraged, and overly ashamed, okay? We tend to doubt our salvation, actually, don't we, sometimes? And this would encompass the addictions. Think of all the addiction counseling you're doing. This would encompass Christians struggling with really big addictions. This view of sanctification will increase your confidence in the Holy Spirit, increase your ability to be honest about indwelling sin, Um, will open the category of suffering from our indwelling sin. Do you make yourself miserable with your sin? Okay, Newton says, our indwelling sin is a form of suffering. What a radically different way of looking at our sin. That's not going to be for the sake of making excuses and blaming anybody. Okay, we'll come back to that in the next talk. We will get better expectations of what does God call us to? What are his goals for us in sanctification? What's he up to? Um, And it will help us become a lot more patient and gracious with ourselves and with others. It will help us not to steal God's glory because our eyes will be open to those moments during the day when God invades your life with a thought that is hit from him. It's not yours. And you say, oh, Lord, thank you for rescuing me. And we'll open your eyes to those moments where he is not rescuing you. And you say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I sinned again. Uh, and help me to trust you with my failure. And again, we'll talk about that more. Um, uh, there are so many implications that flow out of this that are wonderful and joyful and life-changing. Because, you know, our union with Christ has so much good news in it, even though we still struggle with sin, it's outrageous. Because it means, when Christ said it is finished on the cross, that all our sin is paid for, past, present, and future. The sins I haven't even thought to commit yet are already gone. That is not a thought when it sinks down deep that makes you want to go and sin a lot. It takes your breath away. It makes you want to fall on your knees and say, God, I can't believe this kind of love. He began a good work in it, and he's going to finish it. And guess what? He's going to oversee every step along the way. So many good things, and I am running out of time, and I do want to leave you with some questions. But this is what Newton has to say. I will close with his quote, and then we'll read our prayer together. Oh, the comfort, we are not under law, but under grace. The gospel is a dispensation for sinners, and we have an advocate with the Father. There is the unshaken ground of hope. A reconciled Father, a prevailing advocate, a powerful shepherd, a compassionate friend, a Savior who is able and willing to save to the uttermost. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust and has opened for us a new and blood-besprinkled way of access to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help at every time of need. Let's read our prayer together. This prayer is entitled, Yet I Sin is Adapted from the Valley of Vision, and all I did was update the language a little bit with this one. Let's read together. Eternal Father, you are good beyond all thought, but we are vile, wretched, miserable, and blind. Our lips are ready to confess, but our hearts are slow to feel and our ways reluctant to change. We bring our souls to you, 
break them, wound them, bend them, and mold them. Unmask to us sin's deformity so that we will hate it, be horrified by it, and run from it. Our faculties have been a weapon of revolt against you. As rebels, we have misused health and served the foul enemy of your kingdom. Give us grace to grieve our mindless foolishness. Help us to remember that the way of the sinner is hard, that evil paths are full of pain and suffering, and that to depart from you is to leave all that is good. We have seen the purity and beauty of your perfect law, the joy of those in whose heart it reigns, the calm dignity of the walk to which it calls us, and yet we daily violate and despise its precepts. Father, forgive us. Your loving spirit strives within us, brings us scripture warnings, allures us with secret whispers, floods our lives with undeserved blessings, yet we grieve your spirit day after day. We confess our many sins and ask for continual repentance. Thank you for Jesus, who paid for all our sin, past, present, and future, and gave us his perfect obedience as a free gift. May our tears of repentance help us to see the brightness of his glory and fill our hearts with loving gratitude and fresh desires for holiness. In his name we pray. Amen. Copyright 2016 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.